Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Well, I am very excited to be here today, and the purpose of our podcast in this episode is to talk about succession and the presidency, and how a new prophet is chosen. And once again, maybe we can end this podcast in 35 seconds by someone saying, well, isn't Dallin H. Oaks going to be the next president of the church? And the answer is yes, unless the Lord intervenes and Elder Oaks is taken before uh, President Nelson passes away, then yes, something else would happen there. But the senior apostle is always the next president of the church. It hasn't always been that clear. In fact, what a lot, what a lot of people may not realize is with our first several prophets, that would be Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Joseph F. Smith, and others. There was a time period. In fact, there was actually three and a half years between the death of Joseph Smith and the appointment of Brigham Young as the president of the church. So it always hasn't been clear-cut on who the next president of the church would be, but like other things in the gospel of Jesus Christ, things are rolled out, things are revealed, line upon line, precept upon precept. Now, it's really interesting. A few years ago, it was October of 2015, some actuaries got together and they calculated when presidents of the church would die. They expected that Thomas S. Monson would die in 2019. President Monson died a year before that. They also projected that Russell M. Nelson would die at the age of 94 in 2018. They predicted that President Oaks would die in 2021, that Elder Ballard would die in 2019, that Elder Holland would die in 2021 or 22. Anyway, and so, good thing the Lord is in charge and not these actuaries, right, on predicting these things. Now, Elder Anderson gave a talk called The Prophet of God, Ensign, May 2018, where he said, President Nelson's selection to serve as God's prophet was made long ago. The Lord's words to Jeremiah also apply to President Nelson, but before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet under the nations. Only three years ago, Elder Anderson continues, Elder Nelson at age 90 was fourth in seniority, with two of the three senior apostles being younger in age than he was. Now, I think the implication here is, yeah, this there was a very slim chance that President Nelson would become the president of the church with those kind of odds stacked against him. Not that he wanted that to happen, but back to Elder Anderson, the Lord who controls life and death selects his prophet. President Nelson at age 93 is in amazing health. He said how true that is. But we're grateful the Lord is at the helm. And according to President Harold B. Lee, when it comes to succession, when it comes to who the new president of the church would be, the Lord does not do things by accident. He has never done anything accidentally. Or in other words, you can rest assured that when it comes to prophets, seers, and revelators, each prophet is chosen specifically for that time in which they live. In fact, I'll quote President Ezra Taft Benson. 
Teachings of President Ezra Taft Benson, page 142. Each president has been uniquely selected for the time and situation which the world and the church needed them. All were men of the hour. The president was always the right man in the right place at the right time. Now, let me share with you a little history here on why I think that's such a true statement and why I believe it. Joseph Smith was the first president of the church, obviously. He was strong. He was charismatic. He was dynamic. He was humorous. He was an incredible leader. Of course, he had extreme spiritual gifts. But Joseph was also six feet tall, weighed 200 pounds, was incredibly athletic, and of course, young compared to other prophets that we've had. Here's President Nelson called in his 90s, Joseph Smith in his 20s. But think of some of the physical arduous, difficult tasks that Joseph Smith encountered. I mean, I'm thinking of one very specific case where Joseph was chased through the woods in Palmyra, carrying the plates under his arm that weighed 50 or 60 pounds, pulling those plates out of a hollowed log, putting them under his arm and running through a mob of men, uh, getting in a brawl, punching a few, in fact, hitting one so hard, he actually dislocates his thumb and then sprinting through the woods and making it safely to his house to keep the plates preserved. Could you imagine another prophet? Let's say, how about Lorenzo Snow at 5'6", 130 or 40 pounds, having to engage in that type of physicality as a prophet. Now, next we had Brigham Young. Rugged leadership, practicality, in a lot of ways an extension of Joseph Smith, but in other ways very different. In fact, uh, Brigham Young was a wonderful, incredible businessman. He had a great business mind. He was a great organizer. uh, And he was perfect for leading a group of people across the plains and establishing colonies in the West and the church. He was the perfect man for the job. John Taylor was bold and fearless, an incredible defender of the faith. We needed him at that time for what he did. Wilfred Woodruff, visionary, spiritual, a great organizer, record keeper, a great missionary, a great passion for temple work. He dedicates the Salt Lake Temple and other temples. Lorenzo Snow, very much like Wilfred Woodruff in so many ways, spiritual, visionary, revelation. You know, brings the church out of financial bondage with tithing. But like mission presidents and like bishops and wards, every leader that's called is a little bit different than the leader who preceded them or the leader who would come after And each of these men was different in their own way. I think of Joseph F. Smith, our fifth prophet, who was just kind and loving, a wonderful doctrinal scholar, uh, very rooted and established in family life, but also lived at a time where the church was highly persecuted and now in public form, in print. And so many horrible things were written about Joseph F. Smith, but he was so kind and so loving that he absorbed all of that and he did it so well. How about Heber J. Grant? Very different from Joseph F. Smith. He comes on the scene. He's dynamic. He's a financial wizard. He's incredible, uh, an incredible businessman. He had weaknesses that he overcame. He was goal-driven and goal-oriented, but once again, he was had a great financial mind. When is he the president of the church? During the Great Depression. He was able to help the church navigate its way through that time period and through and through World War II and other other huge events like that. And then George Albert Smith shows up. George Albert Smith is very different than Heber J. Grant. Once again, Heber J. Grant had that business mind. 
George, George Albert Smith was very much a people person. He loved people. He loved everyone. He was a saint. He loved the youth of the church. He loved church history. He was connected to our church history. And, uh, you know, when was George Albert Smith the prophet? Well, towards the tail end of World War II and heading into the 1950s. This was a prophet who made sure that his own coat was on a train as goods headed out for Europe to bless the people there. He wanted to contribute. He loved it. Now, George Albert Smith would tell us, because I actually read a song that he wrote about himself, that he was not that handsome. You know, he, he said that about himself, and I just share that because who shows up next? David O. McKay. Incredibly uh, a good-looking man, white hair flowing. People who saw David O. McKay that weren't members of the church often would say things like, okay, I've never seen a prophet, but if that man is a prophet, wow. I think I know what a prophet is now. Uh, President McKay had the white suit, loved to drive in the convertible, having that hair flowing in the wind. I called him a prophet's prophet. He just looked like a prophet. People who saw him said, that man is a prophet. He brought the gospel to the world. In other words, maybe one of the first presidents of the church to go global. And he takes the church out in other places. Now we start building temples in other parts of the world for the first time. Missionary work is talked about. And then who's going to show up next? Joseph Fielding Smith. Extremely different than President McKay. By the way, President McKay serves for 18 or 19 years. Heber J. Grant, 27, 28 years. Brigham Young, 29 years. We had some presidents of the church who actually served for multiple decades. And then Joseph Fielding Smith shows up. He's in his 90s when he's called a doctrinal scholar, a great broad vision, a church historian, a church doctrinal guru, uh, but very uh, quiet. Uh, some called him austere. I'm sure compared to President McKay, his personality was very different. But what a great, what a great president of the church he was. And then after Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold B. Lee shows up. And what's going to happen with President Lee is super significant for our, our, our podcast episode today on the topic of succession. Because Joseph Fielding Smith is only the president of the church for two and a half years. And when President Lee is called, he's the youngest man. David O. McKay was 77 when he was called. President Lee is in his early 70s. And I'm sure that many members of the church thought, all right, here we go. Another prophet for 20 years. Let's buckle up and hang on. We are with President Lee all the way. I read President Lee's biography years ago and the teachings of President Lee. I could not believe how President Lee has shaped the modern church that we know today. Maybe one of the most significant figures in the modern church today. I was just so impressed as I read about President Lee's contributions. But interestingly, most of those contributions came when he was an apostle and not the president of the church. He only ends up being the president of the church for a year and a half and has a heart attack and dies in the hospital when he goes in for a checkup. Then we have President Kimball show up. Who was President Spencer W. Kimball? I always tell our students at BYU, he was the elder Robert D. Hales of the day. Or in other words, he was that apostle that was sick a lot, who was being, in, being hospitalized, who had a lot of health challenges in, in his later years. And I'm sure when President Kimball was called, he had that open heart surgery in 1972 that was performed by President Nelson, our prophet. And then afterwards, he's, it's like given a second lease on life. He just he really just, his energy comes back and 
It's missionary work. It's the gospel to the world. It's temples all over the earth. It's this global perspective. It's area conferences everywhere. We are going for it. It's lengthen your stride. It's do it. Let's get it done. And the church grows immensely under the leadership of of Spencer W. Kimball. And I believe that there are probably very few people who thought that that was coming. When he was put in as as a, as a president of the church, I highly doubt that people were like, okay, buckle up, here we go. I'm sure they thought, well, here's this old sickly man that's probably not going to do much, and he ends up doing so much. And by the way, he ends up living to be 90, which is which is old. It's it, That's a pretty old age, right? And those who knew of President Kimball's heart attacks and brain surgeries and boils and and cancers and other problems would have never thought that man would have lived to be 90. Anyway, now there's also another pattern here that starts to become established with President McKay. He goes international, Joseph Fielding Smith pulls it in. Presently, we can't really say a whole lot, a lot about it. He didn't have a lot of time to go one way or the other, but then President Kimball is gonna go international again. Like President McKay, the gospel's going everywhere, all over the world. And then President Benson comes in and kind of reels it back in. He's the one who talks about pride and cleansing the inner vessel, that we need to get back into the Book of Mormon. And he has this more domestic perspective. President Benson's not traveling all over the world. In fact, he gives a message to every group in the church, to the mothers in Zion, to the fathers in Israel, to the youth of the church, to the young single adults of the church. He speaks to every group. And then after he speaks to every group, he he goes quiet. He gets sick and and he's quite sickly for the remaining few years of his ministry. But yes, he pulls it back in. President Hunter then shows up. Now, most of us didn't know it, but President Hunter was probably not real well when he was appointed to be the prophet. And there may be some who even struggle with his appointment and would say, why would the Lord call a prophet for nine months? And by the way, President Howard W. Hunter only spoke at one general conference, the October General Conference of 1994. But if you look at those talks that he gave at that conference, a message on taking upon ourselves Christ-like attributes, becoming more like Christ, focusing on the temple. He gave a great talk in the priesthood session to husbands and fathers on how they could be better. What he did in that one conference was enough to last us a lifetime. And then President Hinckley shows up. And so we can almost say, in a way, President Hinckley follows the domestic focus of President Benson on let's focus on getting ourselves in a better place here. So then what's President Hinckley going to do? He's going everywhere, right? He's temple builder, prime time church, out of obscurity, out of darkness. He's on 60 Minutes. He's on uh, different television programs in prime time. Uh, He's all over the place. They're traveling internationally, building temples everywhere, almost in a way following the footsteps of President Kimball. What a great, great prophet. And then President Monson, who's going to follow, kind of does the same thing President Benson does, is reels it back in. He's not going to travel everywhere. He's going to say, you know what we really need to do is we need to follow the Spirit. Uh, We need to go to the rescue, and we need to reach the one, and we need to serve those around us. And then what happens next is President Nelson. And I believe President Nelson follows the pattern, in a lot of ways, of David O. McKay, Spencer W. Kimball, and Gordon B. Hinckley, where we're going global. We're going worldwide. In fact, if it wasn't for COVID, I believe that President Nelson would have done many more things that were international. But certainly a worldwide ministry, change and innovation, revelation, stay on the covenant path, 
who would have ever thought that we would have had a medical doctor serving in uh, as the president of the church during a worldwide pandemic but it's back to this idea that the prophet who is called is the perfect person for that time not only in our world's history and in our nation's history but in church history for sure so there's a lot to learn from succession from previous presidents like i, I shared before joe from that period between joseph smith and Brigham Young was three and a half years. In fact, what a lot of people may not know is that Brigham Young was actually appointed to be the president of the church in Iowa, at you know in Iowa at Canesville, not in Salt Lake City. And he was actually on his way back to go to Nauvoo to bring some more saints back. And so there are some other examples. In fact, one of them will be Joseph Smith. We will talk about Joseph Smith here just for a second because. Joseph helps lay the foundation for succession. I'd like to share this with you from the history of Joseph Smith by his mother, Lucy Max Smith, page 248. One thing, brethren, is certain. I shall see you again. Let what happen will happen. For I have a promise of five years, and they cannot kill me until that time has expired. When was it that he said that? 1839. When did he die? 1844, June, five, exactly five years later. Many prophets and apostles during the last years of Joseph's life repeated several times over and over again and testified of what Joseph was doing to transfer his authority and power, actually the Lord's authority and power and keys to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. In fact, this is from Wilfred Woodruff. He said that we had our endowments, we had had all the blessings sealed upon our heads that were ever given to the apostles or prophets on the face of the earth. On one occasion, Joseph rose up and said to us, Brethren, I have desired to live to see the temple built. I shall never live to see it, but you will. I have sealed upon your heads all the keys of the kingdom of God. I have sealed upon you every key, power, principle that God of heaven has revealed to me. Now, no matter where I may go or what I may do, the kingdom rests upon you. Others made similar comments. Probably P. Pratt said it this way, that Joseph said, I do not know why, but for some reason I am constrained to hasten my preparations and to confer upon the twelve all the ordinances, keys, covenants, endowments, and sealing ordinances of the priesthood, and so set before them a pattern in all things pertaining to the sanctuary and the endowment therein. Having done this, he rejoiced exceedingly, for he said, that the Lord is about to lay the burden on your shoulders and let me rest for a while. And if they kill me, he continued, the kingdom of God will roll on as I have now finished the work which was laid upon me by committing to you all things for the building up of the kingdom according to the heavenly vision and the pattern shown me from heaven. With many conversations like this, Joseph comforted the minds of the twelve and prepared them for what was soon to follow. Now, it just so happens that I'm recording this podcast episode on August the 8th. And August the 8th bears great significance in our church. And I always think about August the 8th because of what happened on that day in 1844. Now, some of you may know that uh, more about this than I do, but I just want to share with you from my heart some of the things I do know that... In June of 1844, on June the 27th, after Joseph and Hiram were martyred, it took a while to 
get word to the apostles who were actually spread out all over the country in different places to get them back to Nauvoo to be gathered. It took them until the first week of August. And when they come back, there seem to be two major divisions. Maybe not divisions at all, to be honest with you, but at least two platforms of leadership. And one of them is from Sidney Rigdon. Now, the interesting thing about Sidney is Sidney's not really even a member of the church anymore. I say that because he had already formed his own Church of Christ in Pittsburgh. That's where he was. But when he hears of the deaths of Joseph and Hiram, Sidney comes back to Nauvoo, stands up and talks for hours. I say hours. That's not an exaggeration. His talk went on for two or three hours in the heat of Nauvoo in August. And, you know, Sidney was known as a great orator, a great speaker. But his message fell flat that day. It just was not inspiring. And his message was that, that because Joseph Smith III was a young boy, that he, Sidney, should be the guardian of the church for the next, you know, years or so until Joseph III could become the president of the church. Now, if you know anything about Joseph III, and if you've done your research, one of the things you may know is that Joseph III didn't have a lot of interest in even leading the church. That just was not his thing. But so it's interesting that Sidney made that, that, great, uh, that great speech. Well, when Brigham spoke, his remarks were short, but he told the audience that he would rather have spent a month mourning the dead prophet than so quickly to attend to the business of appointing a new shepherd. But while he was speaking, he was miraculously transfigured before all the people. People of all ages were present, and they later recorded their experiences. Benjamin F. Johnson, 26 at the time, maybe one of Joseph Smith's closest friends, said, as soon as he, that's Brigham Young, spoke, I jumped upon my feet, for in every possible degree, it was Joseph's voice and his person, in look and attitude and dress and appearance, was Joseph himself personified. And I knew in a moment, the spirit and the mantle of Joseph was upon him. Zina Huntington, who was a young woman, 21 years old at the time, said President Young was speaking, but it was the voice of Joseph Smith, not that of Brigham Young. His very person was changed. I closed my eyes. I could have exclaimed, I know that this is Joseph Smith's voice, yet I knew he was gone. But the same spirit was with the people. Now at the time, George Buchanan was 15. He declared that it was the voice of Joseph himself. And not only was it the voice of Joseph which was heard, but it seemed in the eyes of the people, although it was the very person, as though it was the very person of Joseph which stood before them. They both saw and heard with their natural eyes and ears. And then the words which were uttered came, accompanied by the convincing power of God to their hearts, and they were filled with the Spirit and with great joy. Wilfred Woodruff testified, If I had not seen him with my own eyes, there is no one that could have convinced me that it was not Joseph Smith speaking. Now, in view of those statements, Brigham Young's own record of the events of that day, he said in, the, in his journal that my heart was swollen with compassion towards them, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, even the spirit of the prophets, I was enabled to comfort the heart of the saints. Now, later in that day, the saints gathered again, and Brigham Young spoke frankly about the proposed guardianship of Sidney Rigdon and his alienation from Joseph Smith during the two previous years. And he prophesied that all that want to draw away a party from the church after them, let them do it if they can. But they will not prosper. 
Brigham Young continued, and then turning to the main point, he said, If the people want President Rigdon to lead them, they may have him. But I say unto you that the quorum of the twelve have the keys of the kingdom of God and all the world. The twelve are appointed by the finger of God. Here is Brigham. Have his knees ever faltered? Have his lips ever quivered? Here is Heber and the rest of the twelve, an independent body, who have the keys of the priesthood, the keys of the kingdom of God to deliver to all the world. This is true, so help me God. They stand next to Joseph and are as the first presidency of the church. Now, other speakers spoke that day, and they too testified, other apostles, that the keys lied with the quorum, lie with the quorum of the twelve apostles. And many who were there, perhaps even most, knew for sure that the authority and the keys rested with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and with Brigham Young. Let me share with you an experience Elder Holland shared commenting on the death of President Ezra Taft Benson and the appointment of President Howard W. Hunter. Here's Elder Holland, I'm quoting now. He says, It has been an absolutely inspiring experience to watch a genuine ecclesiastical thrill for six days from the death of President Ezra Taft Benson on Monday, May the 30th, to the ordination and setting apart of President Howard W. Hunter on Sunday, June the 4th, we have witnessed a modern apostolic interregnum. Now, an interregnum, this is me talking now, is just the time I'm using the dictionary during which a throne is vacant between two successive reigns or regimes. It's a lapse or pause in a continuous series. It's that space between leaders. And then Elder Holland said, I testify of this remarkable divine process of the men who have been called to lead, including President Boyd K. Packer, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and of the divinity behind the revelations which guide us through such times. Continue with Elder Holland. Can you imagine what would happen in such a circumstance at AT&T or General Motors? The infighting would be absolutely lethal, the corporate bloodletting incalculable, the confusion suffocating, all the while watching the organization spiral downward, out of control, and probably towards destruction. But in the church, not a whimper, not a whisper, not a sixty-fourth of a second without keys and authority and prophetic leadership. And all of this given by revelation to a boy, a boy leading a church then of only a few hundred members. And I love that thought of, of this apostolic interregnum. Elder Stevenson talked about this same concept. He defined that interregnum as that period of time between the death of a prophet and the reorganization of the First Presidency. During this period, the Quorum of the Twelve, under the leadership of the Quorum President, jointly hold the keys to administer the leadership of the Church. Joseph F. Smith taught that there is always a head of the Church, and if the Presidency of the Church are removed by death or other cause, then the next head of the Church is the Twelve Apostles, until a presidency is organized. And then he talked about this most recent interregnum period between when President Monson passed away on January the 2nd, and it ended 12 days later on Sunday, January the 14th, when President Russell M. Nelson was appointed as the president of the church. Now, I'm not sure if there's a more dramatic and specific explanation of succession than the incredible experience that is recorded in vivid detail of the death of President Harold B. Lee and the appointment of President Spencer W. Kimball, I think it teaches us so much about succession in the presidency.
On December the 26th, 1973, President Spencer W. Kimball had spent most of the day at his office at the church office building. It was quiet. Most of the offices in the building were closed. The stores in the city across the street hummed with thousands of after-Christmas shoppers. Elder Kimball returned home from dinner and settled again at his desk for an evening's work. That day in the LDS hospital on the hillside above Salt Lake City, Elder or President Harold B. Lee, the 11th president of the church in succession from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, had come for a medical checkup. At age 74, he had worn himself to exhaustion during the preceding 18 months. There was nothing definably wrong, but he had found himself still weary despite a long night's sleep. And after having dinner with him in the hospital, his wife Joan had returned home, leaving Arthur Haycock, his, his secretary, at his side to watch. About 8 o'clock p.m., as Arthur, Arthur sat reading the newspaper, President Lee suddenly woke, rose to a sitting position on the edge of his bed, and pulled off the oxygen mask he wore to make breathing easier. He spoke a sentence or two, looking beyond Arthur vaguely, and did not respond to questions. He was white, and beads of sweat started on his face. Arthur laid him down and ran for a nurse, and then for a doctor, and in moments, the room filled with medical people responding to the alarm, cardiac arrest. While they worked frantically over the president, Arthur called Sister Lee and the counselors in the First Presidency, Marion G. Romney and N. Eldon Tanner, who was out of town, by the way, to tell them the frightening news. Then he called Elder Kimball, feeling that unless the Lord intervened, President Lee might die, and that therefore his probable successor should be president. Now, Elder Kimball answered the phone cheerfully that evening, once again December the 26th, and said, Hello, Arthur, how are you doing tonight? Not very well, Brother Kimball. President Lee is very ill. I think you ought to come. His voice was strained with tension. Elder Kimball left on the run. In about ten minutes, he reached the hospital, arriving moments before the others. The doctors would not allow anyone in the room where they were working, trying almost brutally to resuscitate the president. So Elder Kimball and Arthur prayed together. When Elder Romney came, Elder Kimball asked him, since he was the presiding officer, President Romney, what would you like me to do? He answered, there is not much we can do right now. All we can do is pray and wait. Now, everyone should know that the first presidency at that time was President Harold B. Lee with N. Eldon Tanner as his first counselor and Marion G. Romney as his second counselor. So when President Romney arrives at the hospital, he is the presiding authority. And that's where President Romney says, there is not much we can do right now. We can just pray and wait. They retired to a room and prayed again fervently, and when they approached the room where President Lee lay, the doctor came out and said, we have given up, and President Lee was dead. With the presidency now dissolved, Elder Romney turned to Elder Kimball and said, President Kimball, what would you like me to do? The mantle had fallen on Spencer W. Kimball as the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, now to lead the church, also we should say as the senior apostle. Weeping, President Kimball called Camilla to tell her that their friend of 30 years had gone. Pray for me, he pleaded. What a great, incredible story of how succession works. You know, President Kimball was known to say of President Lee that a mighty redwood has fallen. But President Kimball himself became a mighty redwood. Now, let me share this with you. President David O. McKay had served for almost 20 years as the president of the church. 
After his death, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was called in his 90s, served for two and a half years. President Lee, who was in his early 70s, was then called. And once again, like I said a little while ago, I'm sure many, many, many members of the church supposed that President Lee would be another prophet for 20 years. Meanwhile, President Kimball had been one of the unhealthiest of the brethren. He had dealt with cardiac trouble, cancer, boils, and a host of other illnesses. And I don't think anyone really expected that President Spencer W. Kimball would be the president of the church. Before the April conference in 1974, which would have been President Kimball's first conference as the president of the church, training meetings were held with the other general authorities, with, with all the general authorities. Elder Grant w, w. Grant Bangader recorded a remarkable experience. He said that as President Kimball spoke, as he proceeded with his address in this training meeting during general conference time, it was just probably in the days before, he had not spoken very long when a, when a new awareness seemed suddenly to fall on the congregation. We became alert to an astonishing spiritual presence, and we realized that we were listening to something unusual, powerful, and different from any of our previous meetings. It was as if, spiritually speaking, our hair began to stand on end. Our minds were suddenly vibrant and marveling at the transcendent messages that were coming to our ears. With a new perceptiveness, we realized that President Kimball was opening spiritual windows and beckoning us to come and gaze with him on the plans of eternity. It was as if he were drawing back the curtains which covered the purposes of the Almighty and inviting us to a new view, to view with him the destiny of the gospel and the vision of the ministry. The Spirit of the Lord was upon President Kimball and it proceeded from him to us as a tangible presence which was at once both moving and shocking. He unrolled to our view a glorious vision. He showed us how the church was not fully living in the faithfulness that the Lord expects of his people and that to a certain degree we had settled into a spirit of complacency and satisfaction with things as they were. It was at that moment that he sounded his famous slogan, we must lengthen our stride. I doubt that everyone fully understands that directive even now if we were to put it into the vernacular of the day, it would be more like, let's get off our dime, let's get going, let's move. President Kimball spoke under this influence for an hour and ten minutes. It was a message totally unlike any other in my experience. I realized it was similar to the occasion of August the 8th, 1844, when Brigham Young spoke to the saints in Nauvoo, following the death of the prophet Joseph. Now he's going to recount some of that story that we've already told, but Sidney Rigdon had returned from Pittsburgh after he had apostatized to try to capture the church. Many people testified, however, that as Brigham Young arose, the power of the Lord rested upon him to the extent that he was transfigured before them. With the appearance and the voice of Joseph Smith, that moment was decisive in the history of the church, and now April the 4th, 1974, is parallel to that experience on August the 8th, 1844. And then, quoting Elder Bangerter again, when President Kimball concluded, President Ezra Taft Benson arose and with a voice filled with emotion, echoing the feeling of all present, he said, President Kimball, through all the years that these meetings have been held, we have never heard such an address as the one you have given. Truly there is a prophet in Israel. Don't you love that? Now, 
On another occasion, Elder Bangader shared this experience. He said, President Harold B. Lee was such a great teacher. He was such a powerful teacher, and he taught us from the scriptures. And when he had died, he said, many of us as general authorities thought, who in the world is going to do that now? Who's going to take his place? How are these meetings going to go forward without President Lee, who had been such a powerful force in those meetings? And when President Kimball got up on that day, and spoke in the way that he spoke. It was so powerful and everyone knew that yes, there is a prophet in Israel. Okay, let's talk about now some key doctrines when it comes to succession. This is from President Kimball, Conference Report, October 1972. But since the death of his servants is in the power and the control of the Lord, he permits to come to the first place only, the one who is destined to take that leadership. Death and life become the controlling factors. Each new apostle in turn is chosen by the Lord and revealed to the then living prophet who ordains them. The matter of seniority is basic in the first quorums of the church. And all the apostles understand this perfectly. And all well-trained members of the church are conversant with this perfect succession program, he said. This is from Elder McConkie in a talk he gave at BYU years ago called Succession in the Presidency. He said the leadership change is automatic and instantaneous. A special revelation is not necessary. Every key is given to each apostle who is set apart a member of the Council of the Twelve. But because keys are the right of presidency, they lie dormant, as it were, in each man, unless and until he becomes the senior apostle and is thus in a position of presidency to direct the labors of the work of all others. Therefore, Succession occurs, as it were, automatically. Now, once again, just to clarify, but when those men are called to be apostles, they are all given all the keys, all those same keys, but those keys lie dormant unless they are the president of the church and only the president can give permission for those keys to be activated. That the senior apostle of God has outlived all the other apostles is a clear indication of the Lord's choice on the matter. And then I love this. At the last heartbeat, Zelda McConkie, at the last heartbeat of President Lee, as that heartbeat ceased, the mantle of leadership passed to President Kimball, whose next heartbeat was that of the living oracle and presiding authority of God on earth. It was not required, nor was it requisite or needed, that the Lord give any revelation, that any special direction be given. The law was already ordained and established. God does not look down each morning and say, the sun shall rise. He has already established that law. He has set the sun in the firmament and the sun operates in harmony with the established law in its rising. And so it was with the transfer of leadership from one prophet to the next. And then Elder McConkie continues that when the president of the church passes on, the first presidency is disorganized or dissolved and the mantle of leadership, the reins of the presidency go to the senior man left and to the council or the quorum of the twelve as a body. Now this is a wide procedure. Elder John A. Widso said it this way. This is a wise procedure because it places at the head of the church the apostle who has been in the longest service. He is known well to the people and trusted by them. He himself knows the procedures of the church, of the church affairs. He is no novice to be trained for the position. It eliminates the shadow of politics from the operations of the council. Now, another thought, and I love this from President Benson, but God knows all things, the end from the beginning, and no man becomes the president of the church of Jesus Christ by accident, nor remains there by chance, nor is called home by happenstance. 
And then from Legrand Richards, before a man is ever called to be an apostle, the Lord knows whether he will eventually be the president of the church, and if so, when. Then he quotes Jeremiah 1.5, which we've already talked about that today. Because of the Lord's infinite knowledge and his power over life and death, President Ezra Taft Benson said, there is no untimely passing of a prophet of God. And therefore, there is no untimely ascendancy of any man to the presidency of the Lord's church. President Hinckley said it this way, through long years of dedicated service, the prophets have been refined and winnowed and chastened and molded for the purposes of the Almighty. The Lord has subdued their hearts and refined their natures to prepare them for the great and sacred responsibility later. It's later thrust upon them. So let's talk about one other principle here that I think is important, and that is that how then is seniority established in the Quorum of the Twelve when, for example, two or three apostles are called on the same day? Now, in our church history, when I say our church history, in our recent church history, there's a pattern to pay close attention to. And here's the pattern. That whenever two apostles have been called, and I'll give you a list of them, ready? President, these are all people who were called on the same day and sustained on the same day in general conference. President Kimball and President Ezra Taft Benson. And that was, you know, in the early 1940s, 1943 to be exact. President Nelson and then President Oaks were both called together in April of 1984. Elder Uddorf and Elder Bednar were called together in October of 2004. Elder Rasband, Elder Stevenson, and Renlund were all called together in October of 2015. And then most recently, Elder Gong and Suarez were called on the same day as well. Now, in almost every case, the answer to which one of the two would be the senior apostle, it's the man who is ordained first. Then you may say, okay, how do they determine who's ordained first? In almost every case, it's the man who is older. There's only been one exception to that that I'm aware of, and it was when Elder Rasband, Stevenson, and Rindland were called. And I, I have a little theory on that, and I only present it as a theory. Please do not think I'm teaching anything doctrinal here. I'm just giving you my best guess. You may remember that in the summer of 2015, uh, Elder L. Tom Perry and Elder Boyd K. Packer passed away early in the summer. And so going into that October conference, my, my assumption is going to be that two apostles were probably called to take their place, which would have been Elder Rasband and Elder Stevenson. Then, just before the October General Conference, maybe just weeks before, or a week before, Elder Richard G. Scott passed away. And I don't know if they were anticipating that or not, but the choice would have been, okay, do we just call the next apostle in the next conference in April, or should we just do all three now? And they went ahead and called the third apostle, who was Elder Renland. And so that's why the order of age is a little bit different. Elder Rasband was born in 1951. He's, he was called first. Elder Stevenson was called second. He was born in 1955. And then Elder Renland was called third. He was born in 1952. So that kind of changes the order just a little bit. This is from Elder President Nelson, our prophet. He said, seniority is honored among ordained apostles, even when entering or leaving a room. Such deference from a junior to a senior apostle is even recorded in the New Testament. When Peter and John, the beloved, ran to investigate the report that the body of their crucified Lord had been taken from the sepulcher, 
John, being younger and swifter, arrived first to the tomb. Yet he did not enter. He deferred to the senior apostle who entered the sepulcher first. Now, for those of you who thought, oh, I just thought Peter was faster, President Nelson makes it very clear that there was a reason for that. Now, I learned this lesson in a different way, but years ago, and I say years ago, not too many years ago, less than 10 years ago, uh, on our faculty at Brigham Young University in the religion department, we found out one day that Elder Packer and Elder Holland wanted to come and address us, which was an incredible experience. We were told to bring our spouses and report to the auditorium in the McKay building at four o'clock. When we arrived, it was really cool to watch. Elder Holland took care of the senior apostle, his senior, Elder, Elder Packer. There was such respect, there was such love, there was a great, a great scene to watch as Elder Holland really waited on and took care of, of Elder Packer. Now, going the other direction, and it wasn't that Elder Packer was uh, being derogatory or insensitive in any way, but Elder Holland always referred to Elder Packer or President Packer as President Packer. Elder Packer always referred to Elder Holland as Jeffrey. And it was kind of funny because it was things like, Jeffrey, what did I do with my briefcase? Jeffrey, do you know what I... And Elder Holland was all over. He was getting all those things. But it was a, there was a real uh, sense of uh, what it means to be a senior apostle. Now, making this a little bit more real, in January of 1983, Elder LeGrand Richards of the Quorum of the Twelve passed away. During the months prior to the April 1983 General Conference, President Kimball's health became very frail and his memory was spotty. To the chagrin of many members of the church, no apostle was called at that conference to replace the vacancy left by Elder LeGrand Richards. So that was in April of 1983. Then in January of 1984, uh, Elder Marky e. Peterson passed away. And so now there are two vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve. President Kimball's health had deteriorated even further and his mind was less dependable. In fact, to make matters worse, those privy to the situation knew President Kimball was in no condition to receive the revelation to extend such calls. Well, for months, President Gordon B. Hinckley, the only healthy member of the First Presidency at the time, by the way, the third counselor, had left standing instruction with President Kimball's caregivers that if his mind ever cleared, they were to call him immediately regardless of the hour. And month after month passed away with passed with no call. From time to time, President Hinckley looked in on President Kimball, but an opportunity to discuss such a spiritually sensitive topic as new members of the Quorum of the Twelve really never presented itself. And by the way, I'm quoting from Sherry Dew, Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson, pages 157 and 158. Then at 2.30 a.m., on the Wednesday morning prior to the 1984 General Conference, the phone rang at President Hinckley's home. President Kimball was alert and would like to talk to him. President Hinckley rushed downtown to President Kimball's suite in the Hotel Utah, where the issue of vacancies in the 12 was raised. By the way, are we appreciating this as this story is being shared, that literally President Hinckley is driving the streets of downtown Salt Lake at 3 o'clock in the morning, in his suit and tie, I'm sure, to go hear President Kimball uh, give some instruction. President Kimball said simply, call Nelson and Oaks to the Quorum of the Twelve in that order. And that was it. That was the instruction that was given. And of course, President Hinckley acted upon it immediately. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 107, verse 22, 
It says of the Melchizedek priesthood, three presiding high priests chosen by the body, appointed and ordained to that office, and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayer of the church, form a quorum of the first presidency of the church. I love that our first presidency is upheld by the confidence, faith, and the prayer of the church, and that they actually do form a quorum. Now I share this with you when it comes to learning to give our loyalty to the next prophet, a new prophet. This is from Lauren C. Dunn years ago in General Conference, but he said, I'd like to share with you an experience or two. When I was growing up, Heber J. Grant was the president of the church. My father always prayed for President Grant, and he had great personal feelings for him because President Grant at one time was the president of the Tooele Stake, and my father at the time was now the president of the Tooele Stake. President Grant became ill and passed away. And I can remember after the funeral, kneeling in family prayer as a young boy and hearing my father praying with the same love and devotion and feeling for the next prophet, the next president of the church, George Albert Smith. As a youth, I was surprised because I had never heard anyone pray for any prophet other than Heber J. Grant. And I felt almost cheated, like my father was turning away from a good friend. But as the time went on, through that experience and other experiences, he taught me a very valuable lesson. You see, he had great love and appreciation for President Grant, and that would never change. But in his heart, I realized that he had saved his greatest love and his greatest loyalty for his God. And whoever God would send, he would sustain and uphold and pray for and embrace. I would call that lesson number one. Now here's lesson number two from Elder Dunn. He said, I was talking to a priesthood leader just last weekend. We had finished our Saturday night leadership meeting at a state conference, which was on missionary work. And he said to me, you know, you are really a missionary general authority. And I said, no, I don't consider myself a missionary general authority. If I can be remembered for anything, and I hope that somehow, somewhere I can, I would settle for that which my father taught me and for which I feel he was known. And that is one who is willing to give allegiance to and to follow a prophet of God. And if that can be my lot, then I feel I will have accomplished the thing the Lord has sent me to do. It is not the program, it is not the activities, but in the final analysis, it is our loyalty to him whom God has called and the offering of our prayers on his behalf. There is a scripture that goes this way. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. That's Matthew 10, 41. Elder Dunn continues, I have come to realize the literalness of that promise. I have seen those blessings in the life of my father because of his loyalty. I would like those blessings for my family and myself. And I would like to see those blessings in the life of every Latter-day Saint. Well, I stand before you today, or sit before you anyway, and tell you I am so grateful. I am so grateful for the organization and the order in the Lord's church and kingdom. I'm thankful for this principle of succession because in my mind, it leaves no doubt to all the members of the church who the next president of the church is going to be. It's not like who's going to be the next bishop of our ward or who's going to be the new stake president. There's no wiggle room here. We all know that the senior apostle uh, after the prophet will be the next president of the church. And I take great comfort in that, knowing that there's order and that the Lord is behind this organization and that he blesses it and that he watches over it. I'm so grateful for this order in the Lord's kingdom.